And it's a special desk of sport this week as we look forward to all the sporting action that will take place in this year's 1994 World Cup Finals in America in Alan Partridge's World Cup Countdown to 94. What else has he got that's going to make him like a city legend, you know, forever? Got a cagoule. He's got a cagoule? Yeah. Is he zipped up? All the way to the top. Like Men in Black is, have you ever seen the film Men in Black? Mm. Yeah, have you seen it? Yeah. This is what my team is, is like, you ready? You watch a game, they get beat, you sit there and you think that was a joke, that was shocking, and then he talks, and then he must press a button, and when he finishes talking we all go, oh, it weren't that bad, was it? Everybody speaks about this, this tackle, nobody speaks about a uh, 50 yard pass that kills Balmon and, and it causes a red card for him. Um, and nobody sh talks about the shot that um, Landru would have uh, been happy to, to see, you know, he didn't see the ball, never mind uh, have a chance to save it. He's a bit like the Trojans, isn't he? The Klitschko's are like the Trojans, thought they were unbeatable until they took a bit of brains and then come over and done them in secretly. Sniped the titles away. And it's a special desk of sport now as we look back on some of the sporting highlights of the last sporting season. So lie down, relax and let the sports commence. Welcome to Action Replay's Extra Time. We're going to be talking Tyson Fury's explosive week, Sparta Prague's unusual discipline procedures, and a look ahead to Leinster's Pro 12 clash with Munster at the weekend. With me here in the studio is Enda Call and Billy Keenan. How are you doing, lads? Not so bad. Very well. Right, so we'll get straight into it. Tyson Fury has had a very interesting week. Enda Call, do you want to talk us through your your thoughts? Well, interesting is is a very, very understated word for the for his week. First, he was in a he was in a press conference and started uh, jiving at uh, Clisco for losing to a fat man, and then next thing he's retiring, tweets tweets out a retirement tweet, basically calls out everybody in the in the boxing industry, says they can go suck a <laughs> male's male's uh, organ, and then uh, basically just comes b back then a day later, you can't get rid of me that easily. I'm not retiring, and then. Sure, another day later he's bipolar. So it kind of explains, as, uh, as you're going through his week, you, you kind of get the sense that there is something going on in his head there. Yeah, so it's, it seems pretty clear by the tweet. He, he announced he had depression, he's bipolar, he's been taking copious amounts of cocaine. Do you think there's too much media pressure on him to be something that he's not, or to be a bit more PC, or do you think his, his life outside of sport is kind of fair enough as long as it doesn't overlap with his professional sides. Well, he in some of the things he's saying, he does have a point. I mean, he he didn't get into boxing to be a media ploy. He didn't get into boxing to do press conferences. He got into boxing to to make money to to box, and he is entitled to his own private life. But being the world heavyweight champion, going back go back to Ali's age, like I mean, you have to expect to have the media after you. And wanting wanting to talk to you and wanting question wanting to question you, and especially if you're going to be getting caught up in controversies like uh, being caught for doing cocaine, and especially things like his his mental health, like people want to know about these things, and journalists are going to want to know about these things, and he has to expect a certain degree of media pressure. Oh, well, okay, just like say to give an example, because obviously when you signed up to 
this kind of professional lifestyle, you're going to have drug testers calling at your door any time at all. They can turn up at like two o'clock in the morning for some stories I've heard. So, you know, if if somebody isn't actually close to a fight, I know this isn't really the case with Tyson Fury, but they're doing their own thing in their private lives. They do get a random drug test and a substance like cocaine shows up on it, which isn't performance enhancing. Should it be disclosed to the media or should it have an effect on their professional careers? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. You can look at it like the way Tyson Fury is looking at it. He said, why shouldn't I take cocaine? It's my life. It's not a performance enhancing drug. Why the hell not? Like, it's up to me. I can do cocaine. But you can also look at it the way, if you know you're going to be drug tested, which all those boxers know they're going to be drug testers, why would you take cocaine? Because it's going to come up and it's going to be in the press. Do you think that would be within UFC's or any kind of doping agency's rights to disclose substances you're taking that aren't performance enhancing, legal or not legal? Well, it's not really within their rights, but they're doing it. And um, it's just giving more publicity to them. So why wouldn't they do it? If if it's within your contract for your doping tests to be published, then... It's, it's completely within the UFC's rights to publish it. Uh, it depends on the stance that they want. If, if they're solely testing these athletes for performance-enhancing drugs, then maybe not, but also it's the, rep, it's the reputation of the UFC, of, of boxing as well, that they're athletes. And you, know, you even look at you know, football or other sports, it, it doesn't shine a particularly good light on the sport that, that they're representing. Well, it's a bit like golf, isn't it, though? There's drug testing in golf, but you never hear about it. Why don't you hear about it? You hear about a, a player, he's out for a few months. Is he injured? You don't know. And it has happened on several occasions, especially with Chews, T-U-E's. I mean, yeah. that, that has happened on several occasions in golf, and it's just a different sport. Whereas boxing's concerned, people are more concerned about doping and whether the fighter is clean. Um, so what do you think is next for Tyson Fury do you think he should be stripped of the title or do you think he has a right to freeze it I think he should stop doing cocaine first of all <laughs> <laughs> I think you know going starting in that that article was it was it was incredible things like saying he doesn't want to be here anymore he doesn't want to live he said something like I know as a man who is married and has two or three kids I shouldn't be saying that but I am and then to follow on by saying I do lots of cocaine. Whose business is that? It's not your business. Well, you, you've, you've just told me that you suffer from depression and you have an unbalanced lifestyle. You know, immediately there's an issue there. Stop doing cocaine and maybe get back into that, that routine of, of actually training and not pulling out of fights. You know, is he pulling out of fights and, and missing them because he's depressed or is he depressed because he's, he's not fighting? And I think... Uh, I'm not really sure how it's done in boxing, but if he's continuously not stepping up to the fight, then maybe that title should be stripped. I I do agree with you there. I mean, if you're bipolar, bipolar is basically extreme highs, extreme lows. And obviously he's going to have extreme lows. But if you're doing cocaine, those extreme highs are going to be extreme, extreme highs. And your lows are going to be even worse. And I think that's why he's coming out with, like, I, w- I hope I die every day. The, the cocaine is definitely not helping with his mental health. I mean, no. um, it is within the public interest to know that kind of stuff if he is... Like, you, you never want to see a man who wants to die going into a fight. I think I think that is the main point here because who a man who has nothing to lose going into a fight is a dangerous man. 
if he if he's not afraid of dying, then and he actually wants to die, that's a that's a dangerous thing to have in a ring, and I think that a person's mental health should be assessed be, before going into a fight like that. I mean, there was a fighter from England, uh, Bruno. He also suffered from uh, bipolar disease, and he he came out one time and said that nobody seeing wants to hit someone in the head for a living. He wasn't even joking about that. Nobody like who goes into a ring, like who decides, oh I want to I want to fight for a living, who actually does that? And if a man who is clinically insane and has bipolar disease has extreme lows, what happens if he has an, an extreme low just before the fight decides I'm gonna throw this, I'm gonna let Klitschko yeah. kill me? I mean that that's that for me is really dangerous. But regardless of all of this, he did step into a ring with Klitschko. It was a terrible fight, but he won it. It doesn't really matter about his ethical principles or anything like that. He's he's once he's in the ring, yeah. He's earned the title in terms of the perspective of the sport itself. Um, Does his ethics outside really have a bearing on it, or do you think he should be given a certain amount of time to at least try and crawl himself back into physical peak or a competing standard? I think you could look at um, at the. Mend- is it that was it Mendez and McGregor fight where Naldo pulled out and McGregor got an interim belt? Yeah. Could it? Could there even be something like that? But I also know that in boxing, that the way it's done is that you know we sell, we're selling the next fight, we're selling the next fight. So you're going to be the new super heavyweight champion of the world. You're going to, you know, that or, or, or however. So they they need to keep this going. So I'm not sure if there is is time in boxing to. To, to give Tyson Fury that amount of time I'm not sure Okay well I suppose we'll just have to wait and see it as it goes but uh, we're going to stick with boxing for now anyway because the Amateur International Boxing Association AVA have sidelined all 36 referees and judges used at the Rio Olympics until an investigation has been concluded Gentlemen is this shocking in any way to you? Uh, I'm, you know that Given, particularly coming from an Irish point of view yeah. likes of Taylor uh, I don't think Paddy Barnes is so was so up for up in the air, but definitely with Michael Conlon, you know, g- genuine shock over the way the decisions were turned. There was a little bit of controversy in terms of you know possible bribes and things like that. So I think it's excellent that there has been an, an investigation launched into the referees and judges from Rio. Do you think it's a bit too little, too late from them, given that all of this controversy or all of this criticism was going on during the games while it was happening? It seemed quite clear to a lot of people that. These uh, some judges were blatantly corrupt, or some decisions were blatantly wrong. And it's, it, it's different to something like, uh, you know, cycling, or even Rob Heffernan, who was who was an award and a medal, or moved up the rankings after an invis- investigation was filed. You know, there's no there's no clear ranking. You either win your fight and you lose your fight, and it's it's a shame because people have missed out on the opportunity for of a medal. So I think it's too little, too late because no matter what happens now. The results aren't going to change. You can never give yeah. Katie Taylor and Michael Conlon back their medals or even the chance that. to go and earn the medal. You know? Yeah. Well, I think I, I think it's too late. I'm not sure if it's too little because I mean at least they're doing something about it. At least it's not going unpunished, and the the referees should definitely be punished if they're caught. It's definitely too late. The, why wasn't a background check done before the Rio Olympics? Not after that. That's when you need to put these things in place. And like Conlon said, it's it's rotten to the core. It seems to be a reoccurring team because we had the exact same thing in London 2012. And we had it in Ch- we had it in Beijing as well. With Azerbaijan buying medals. 
I mean, in 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 Beijing, like the the Chinese won was it every gold medal in the boxing, and uh, Ireland it's, lost out in a gold medal that year as well. Incredible pedigree in China for boxing. <laughs> oh, insane, insane. Sure, I mean, sure, isn't Klitschko Chinese? In, yeah. in, in a way. Why haven't we got any telegraphs? It's reporters going undercover on this. It seems like a much easier thing yeah. to catch. Well, they seem to be doing everything these days, you know. Okay, so we'll move on. We'll do a quick bit of football. Um, it was an interesting week for Swansea City. Um, they managed to sack their manager and hire a new manager all within the same tweet. Uh, <laughs> and Di Matteo has also left at Aston Villa. So what are your thoughts? Uh, same old Swansea. Not making the right choices. Haven't made a right choice since they sacked Brendan Rodgers. Um, I think Swansea is a weird one for me because... When Swansea came to the Premier League... Did Swansea sack Brendan Rodgers? Oh, no, he, he left, sorry, he left. He left. They sacked uh, Gary Monk. Gary Monk. Gary Monk, uh, that was also a terrible choice. The man was the Premier League manager of the year, the year before he didn't get the award, but for me he was. But if you look at the Brendan Rodgers, Swansea, he got them to the Premier League playing nice football and playing playing passing football. And then Gary Monk did the same. And then since Gary Monk... They've bought players that just don't suit this this kind of play and they've gone away from that. And in my opinion, they've gotten worse. Do you feel like they of are that. the victims of this TV money and they just don't know how to spend it? They really are. I mean, they have Laurenti playing up front for them. I mean, why is Laurenti playing for Swansea? We spoke about <laughs> this last can. week. Why is he playing for Swansea? It makes no sense to me. He's Swansea, one of them. If any team in the Premier League at that kind of level could sign a player of the standard of Fernando Llorente, you would, wouldn't you? You, you would, but it just doesn't click for me you like why a player of his stature is why why is he playing for Swansea Money. Yeah, you have Money. To add, <laughs> it's not why do Swansea have him it's why is he playing for Swansea I mean when um, when they started off in the Premier League like I, like I said they were playing passing football uh, Leon Britton had a better pass percentage rate than Iniesta that was the kind of football they were playing <laughs> Leon Britton, and I'm not saying that he should be starting for them because me and Breen had this argument before we actually came to the studio. Um, I'm just saying they should be playing nicer football. I mean, they've they've gone away from their whole ethos and uh, they've completely declined because of it. <laughs> okay, so what do you think um, with the decision to bring in Bob Bradley, an American who has no Premier League experience, who was gunning for this job between himself and Ryan Giggs, who obviously has no Premier League, well, more Premier League experience and no managerial experience. How do you think they faced that decision, and how do you think do you think it was the right one? I'm not sure because I was listening to um, to Robbie Savage and Chris Sutton and all of them argue that, argue this point earlier. They said that British managers who have experienced the Premier League should always get the jobs ahead of outsiders. Um, but I th- that's that's just a bit of arrogance within the British football. I think uh, if a if a manager is good enough to do the job and the board ha- has the board backing, I don't see why not. I mean, you have Klopp, Mourinho, Coman, Pochettino. They all came from outside the Premier League. They didn't have experience in the Premier League. They're, they seem to be doing a pretty good job at it. So there's no reason why Bob Bradley can't, Bradley can't do the same, but... As a United fan, I probably would have preferred Ryan Giggs to get the job. And what do you think will be next for Ryan Giggs? Do you think he has the right to walk into a Premier League job? Or do you think he needs to go outside of England or down the leagues? Well, I don't see why he wouldn't get a Premier League job. I mean, 
you can say he should start with a championship side and build his way up and build a reputation as a manager. But, th- I mean, why couldn't he just hop into a Premier League job and, and do as, as good a job as anyone else? And I'd say he'd face a lot of criticism if it went wrong at first, I suppose, which is exactly what happened to Tim Sherwood, who did have a quite a successful playing career. Obviously, nowhere near what Ryan Giggs had, but... Yeah. Once he took over at Tottenham, it did seem like he, he did find his entitlement to Premier League managerial jobs and even turned down a job at Norwich. Well, you just need to... I think for for Ryan Giggs, you just, he, he needs to take a leap. If he's offered a Premier League job, he needs to grab it. Like Gary Neville grabbed the Valencia job. Fair enough, that went down too. But Gary Neville always admitted that it could well do that. Yeah. And he doesn't have the experience. And if it does go that, he will step aside. And if it happens, Ryan Giggs... If it doesn't go well for him and he steps aside, I think his reputation won't be damaged too much. I mean, how, how can you damage your reputation more than an affair with your brother's wife for 20 years? How can you damage that? Anyway? Uh, you thought you got past that one, Ryan. About it. <laughs> nope. Um, moving on, another managerial casualty was Roberto Di Matteo, who got the sack from Villa this week. Um, are Villa just going to keep on their downward spiral? I, I think so. I said it last season when Aston Villa were in danger that I think Aston Villa are the new Leeds or the new Nottingham Forest, or well, they're, and, their and championship standings. Aren't they, really they spent fifty-one million. You. They they spent more than Real Madrid in the summer, and they're still they're seventeenth in the championship. Nineteenth. Uh, Nineteenth in the championship. That's even yeah. worse. And uh, ever since, well. O'Neill will say it was a mutual agreement, but ever since they got rid of O'Neill, they've just gone down the tube. I mean. He, the man finished sixth for two years in a row. I remember there was a, a tug of war between Arsenal for a Champions League space at yeah. one point. And you can see in, in O'Neill's managerial career with Aston Villa, he went from 13th, 8th, and then 6th, two years in a row. And then w- once they got rid of him, they just continued to decline further until <laughs> they finally got finally got uh, relegated. And they were holding on the Premier League the past few years and I, I honestly can't see them coming back to the Premier League for many, many years. Okay, so moving on, we're going to go to uh, Prague of, is going to be the next destination. We had a very unusual discipline procedure from the Sparta Prague's first team. Uh, so basically over the weekend, Sparta Prague had two players um, basically make sexist comments towards a female lineswoman who apparently made a very dodgy call on an offside. One of them made it during the game, the other one made it on Twitter afterwards about, you know, stay in the kitchen, your your standard uh, cliche sexist comments made at women. Uh, Sparta Prague took action by sending the two players to train with the women's team for the week. How do you feel about this? It, it depends on how it was handled. You know, I think if if they were sent to train with the women's team as to be shown that they are professional athletes. They must be treated with respect, and that's fine. But if they were sent, the way you phrase it, that they were sent, they were demoted down, then that's completely the wrong way. I know, for example, it's happened, you know, in, in rugby, and without even realizing it, people have made homophobic slurs. Now, most most people would move on and, and not really take a, a huge amount with it. But David Pocock is uh, a strong advocate of against homophobia and he made a point of saying it to the referee said player who made a homophobic slur then went and trained and started coaching and made appearances at South Africans openly gay rugby team and saying you know it was a slip of the tongue it is a mindset I am not homophobic but 
homophobic slurs are in my vocabulary when I'm insulting someone. Yeah. So I think when it comes down to were they sent, were they demoted, or were they sent to learn some to respect have from their the women? Eyes open yeah, and get their legs kicked off, probably. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I hope they were sent, and I, and I hope uh, you know the said players have come out and and, and apologised and and said that they've actually learned something about I, their experience. I think there will be a bit of a follow-up to this yeah. story. How do you feel about it, Andy? Do you think this is a demotion or a, like a punishment, or do you think this is a, um, a good lesson? It's prob- It probably is a good lesson. I mean, I'm, think of the abuse those guys are going to get off those women. I mean, um, I, as Billy said, if it was a demotion to training with the ladies as the same as being demoted to train with the reserves, and it's... It's kind of doing the opposite of what it should be doing. If you were on the women's team, how would you feel about it? Uh, I would be very insulted, but I'd also be insulted with the fact that, Sparta, let's be honest, Sparta Prague's women's team probably aren't getting paid the same as that those guys are. So, I mean, there's a kind of there's an inside hypocrisy to it all, because you're sending them to train with the ladies so they learn a bit of respect, but those ladies aren't getting paid the same as those guys are for doing the same job. So there's a bit of hypocrisy in it. It's a very cloudy subject to get into. Um, But I think it it probably was the only way of dealing with it, apart from them coming out in the media and apologising, which probably will be done as well. Um, Otherwise, I can't see any other way of dealing with it. What were you happy with about your side? Oh, happy. Happy everything. Everything. Very good. Very happy with my team. But you didn't win, did you, Brendan? Yeah, won. We didn't win, it's true. Yeah. It Why didn't you win? win? Oh, good question, that. Very good question. Win. It's, it's important to win. It is important to win. We must try harder. Absolutely, yeah. So you think it's a lack of effort? Oh, lack of effort, lack of effort. I can't think it's a lack of effort. Wouldn't so, never... So, 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 so what is it, Brendan? Uh, what would it be? Let me think. Uh, I can't, I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that one. Think about it deeply. Moving on to rugby, we've got Gordon Darcy on the line who's going to talk us through the Leinster versus Munster game coming up this weekend. Um, Gordon wrote a piece in the Irish Times entitled The Derby That Needs to Get Back to Its Roots. And in the article, Gordon, you said that at the beginning of your own career, the Munster fixture was all that mattered. What do you think has gained more importance since? Um, uh, no, I think... Um, oh, I suppose the context of what I was trying to... What I was trying to Saying that it was it was an introduction to me um, that I didn't really understand the magnitude of the interpros and what they were. So I'd already had about four or five caps for Leinster and you know, even at European level, and then I played an interpro and I realised about what intensity was about and the physical element of things and how that can actually spur you on to, I suppose, get an extra five or ten percent out of your performance. Um, where that's relevant to, I think, off the back of Munster doing well and Leinster doing well in a, in a in a collective period of time, they put a lot of effort into those interpro games, and they almost had a sidebar in every season. And I think that was that was relevant to those teams doing well at the time. Okay, and do you think that the potential awesome caps are more important than this game for a player today? And if so, do you think a player could uh, justify putting their body on the line if it puts an international call up at risk? Uh, you know, I, ca- I can't. I can't really speak for players' mindsets and what they're in and where they are now. Uh, the great thing about sport is once you're out, you're out. So it it moves on. It's quite a it's quite a ruthless 
environment because once you once you retire you move on and the game moves on from you and and you've no insight into the game because players need to be in that little insular bubble and once you're out you're out so I, I couldn't I couldn't speak for other players I could only go off my own past experience and for me playing in the November internationals never really entered your head when you're playing an interpro because particularly against Munster there was so much tradition and so much uh, passion in the previous games that there was almost an inherent obligation on you to perform on that day regardless of what was coming around the corner. Gordon, just on the old games, especially in the 90s, you mentioned particularly, you know, just the level of aggression and, and it really that it was, a, it was a game that really meant a lot to both people on both sides. Um, do you think that has anything to do with, I suppose, rugby in its early days of professionalism, that there still might have been a level of amateurism there in, in terms of the mentality, even though the game was probably professional? Yeah, well, I've, I've kind of maintained that uh, at the very at the at the embryonic stages in professionalism, it was professional in name only. Yes, it was still very very much amateur. In a lot of ways, you were actually trying to outperform. Probably nowadays, you're probably trying to outperform somebody in a in a in a game. Whereas back then, you could probably a, a certain a certain element of your approach was well, if I can catch this guy flush and I can hurt him. Mm. Maybe that'll that'll do more for my chances playing in a, in a green jersey than uh, than anything else. Or if I can kick the living out of him, um, <laughs> and he doesn't, he can't get up off the ground, can't finish the game. The coach might be looking at that and go, "Well, he's a tougher individual." So it, it was it, it was reft as games were reft in in those times. There was no videos. Um, you know, there was nothing. Um, I'm not going to say dirty because there was plenty of dirty stuff happening. It was nothing um, illegal happening, but you know, you knew if you carried a ball in and you went to ground, uh, there was a good chance you were coming out, you know, for the worse. How do you think this game ranks today? Because I remember the 2008 Heineken Cup semi-final, obviously the one in Crow Park. Not only did you have Irish internationals on both sides, I mean, look, you can go through a lot of them. Yourself, Brian, Shane, you had Paul and Raj on the other side. But then you also had guys like, you know, the Rocky Elsom, Dougie Hale that was on the Munster team as well. Um, do you still, there seem to be a lot of probably esteem and probably, you know, there's a lot of uh, international players in those games where maybe in Irish rugby today we might not see the same amount of international players. I think a lot of those players would now be playing in England and France. Do you, do you still think the game has the same amount of uh, maybe prestige as what it might have had 10 years ago? Like the game overall or this particular match? Well, this particular matchup, because I suppose the, the both of these you teams... Know, sorry, you you kind of... Uh, kind of talking, talking in and around it. Um, yeah, the, you're talking about something else there. You're talking about a recruitment policy. Yes. Um, and that has been largely, I don't think there's much debate around it. The recruitment policy hasn't been as free as the provinces would like. IRFU have their say on it and everybody else has their, has their opinion on it. I personally think that the game is better off uh, for having a player of, say, uh, Charles Piathouse level. Um, in in and for Ruan Pinar and the quality of players, if they're not foreign, if they're not overseas projects in the other provinces, is is questionable. You look at Bundyaki and he's a he's a fantastic, uh, proven to the to the game and to the Pro 12. Um, as far as internationals go, you you know you look up the matchups that are going to happen this weekend. You kind of you Peter Romani's back. Whoever he's playing against is going to be Josh van der Flyer, Dan Levy. Great matchup there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie Heaslip against um, CJ Sander again a great uh, a, a great um, a great a great backup there and um, the 15 Simon Zebo is going to be coming back in 
Um, there's Rob Carney fit. You know, there, there is matchups right across the. It's, I'm sorry, it does look like it's going to be a little bit early for Robbie Henshaw, but there is there's plenty of potential matchups and the quality. The names probably you're not talking about them largely in the same breath as you talk of an O'Connell, O'Driscoll, or an Agara. Mm-hmm. But how many people? How many times are we going to have players of that caliber in one generation again? You know, they're used sometimes one one in a generation players, and we seem to ha- we seem to get two or three or four of them in every team. So maybe we're just it was a very rich uh, um, period. Um, but you know, there's guys like Jack McGrath, who would be I'm very interested to see how he goes in this game. It'll be a very uh, important season for him. You know, a potential Lions tour at the end of this year for him. Well, is there just a sense that maybe that... Gordon, you mentioned in terms of the age-old argument of how can players get experience. Someone like Joey Carberry, who's 20 years of age, and you talked about Paul O'Connell already making ripples at the age of 23. Here's Joey Carberry, has announced himself in this Lancer team, overtaking likes of Ross Byrne and Cahal Marsh coming off an under-20s campaign. He is now in the wider training squad for Ireland during the week in Carton House. What, is, is he a player who can really stand up and be seen as a, as a bright young talent as the likes of O'Connell was in these early I games I think you're probably overstating a lot of a lot of things there um, definitely his overtaken Ross and Cahill uh, as, the, as the number two out half in Leinster everything else hasn't announced himself anywhere he had three he had three good games for Leinster in a Pro 12 um, n- and not against any dramatic uh, not a dramatic step up uh, from where he was, um, and had some notable errors in that, and his tactical his tactical development is still, you know, is cl- as clear that it needs to be seen. And in the larger in the larger training squad, you know, you can you can talk in and around that. Uh, what you call it? he's not going to fly in Madigan home from from France. All I would say about Joey Carberry is has loads and loads and loads of potential, but has a huge huge volume of work to get through before um, he would ever be talked about in the same uh, being talked about as uh, has arrived or has announced himself onto 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 anything um, has plenty of potential but there's been lots of players have had plenty of potential and then when the game catches up with them and the game figures them out the biggest challenge for him is that he has to keep evolving as uh, as every you know four or five months uh, pass by and if you can keep evolving with the game as the game tries to defend you then he'll do very well I was, I was just going to ask um, Gordon just with I suppose in your era of rugby okay say like the mid 2000s a lot of the Irish players would have been centrally based in Ireland and I suppose you were really the first wave that really got into a lot of those central contracts where now with Johnny going to Racing a couple of years ago um, and now the increasing riches of the French and English leagues you've got like JJ Hanrahan's gone Ian Madigan's gone uh, Matty Moore's gone do you think this is just the start that Irish players will be? We'll see a lot more Irish players start to be based in the likes of France and England, and then also as a, probably a second part of that question, that maybe a lot of these young players will start getting a lot more breaks at Leinster and Munster, um, if and Ulster, if a lot more players start going abroad. Um, yeah, well, I think there's there's only thirty really thirty five contracts available in each province, um, so there has to be life outside of lights out, lights life outside of Ireland and. The more players you have playing at a high level, the more the more options you have. Uh, you kind of look. You had Tommy Bow, you had Jordy Murphy, and now you have Ian Madigan. Um, these are all Irish international players who played abroad. So I think the more players you have playing at a higher standard, it can only be good for the it can only be good for the national team. 
And just finally, uh, Alan's playing All Blacks uh, next month. There's, there's one test in Chicago and one back here in Dublin. What have you made of this current All Black team? You've played against a lot of great All Black t- teams in your career. W- any any memorable games that really stick out to you? Any times that you were really close where you felt that you really had the better of them? And uh, is this is this the same team as 10 years ago? I mean, is it the same strength? Is this team better than the one than a lot of the teams that you may have faced? Well, you, you know, you're talking about, um, I suppose, re, or re, restocking the, uh, the the team, and the All Blacks have done that largely. It's an unrecognisable team, I suppose, the one that's won the last two World Cups. Yes. You kind of, I suppose, everybody held a little candle in the wind, hoping that they wouldn't be the same with when uh, Richie McCall and Dan Carter stepped away, but they're arguably better now than they were. Yes. So that's a worry for everybody. <laughs> um yeah, Corey, I think, you know, we've, I, nearly, we, I was nearly involved. I was in a team that nearly beat them four times and lost in the last kind of 90 seconds, 20, 10 minutes kind of, kind of thing. So four games, very frustrating against them because uh, their disability to when they're under the pump to make good decisions under real pressure is exemplary and that's why they're the best in the world. And because and, there is a sense, because there's a lot of tradition with the Irish and the All Blacks just in the fact that we've never beaten them and it seems a lot of those 10 minutes... Those final 10 minutes when we've seen with a lot of teams through the years, even South Africa a couple of weeks ago, the game was you know, 60 minutes in and in the last 20 minutes they just pull away. Is that more on their ability to pull away or is there a sense in that last 10 minutes as an Irish player that players are maybe accounting for the history and that there's a real sense of occasion that might not be associated no, with a lot that, of other teams? No, that's never really. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's unfortunately, that's, that's a spectator probably trying to rationalise something or somebody who's never played a game at that level trying to rationalise what's happening but that generally doesn't happen on a pitch you know you're in you're very much next moment focused and what the All Blacks do is they just like it really isn't rocket science they just make really good decisions when pressure is on and that was no more that was no more highlighted than when they beat us in the Aviva in 2013 and they had to go 75 metres with two and a half minutes on the clock and they just made perfect decisions and on the flip side of it we made bad decisions um, so that's it's not rocket science, but it's very very hard to do. Yes. Um, to make to make it's like there's a, a great uh, kind of quote around this, like being extraordinary is not doing exempl- is not doing extraordinary things. It's just doing the right things at the right time under real pressure, and that's 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 what they do. It just looks simple um, when they do it, but everybody's on the same uh, everybody's on the same uh, wavelength, and it just. It just looks, it's just very frustrating to play against. Yeah, I can imagine, I can only imagine, uh, yeah, excellence is, I think, greatness uh, consistently executed, so I think they do that better than anyone else. Gordon, thanks very much for coming no on today, I really, really thanks appreciate it, and uh, all the best, yeah, we'll look forward to Take reading care. you in the Irish Times. I will love it if we beat them, love it, 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 and when you do things like that about a man like Stuart Pearce, I've kept really quiet, but I'll tell you something. He went down in my information when he said that. We have not resorted to that. But I'll tell you, you tell him now if you're watching it, we're still fighting for this title. And he's got to go to Middlesbrough and get something. And, And I'll tell you, honestly, I will love it if we beat them. Love it.